So every week we go to the scriptures because it's in the scriptures that the person and work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. Our sermon text this week will be from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. But before we read, let us pray together. Gracious God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, our good, and our maturity. So grant us to read, hear, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. And that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, our King, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Now hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when they had said these things, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning. My name is, I guess that's two back-to-back greetings. There you go. Um, My name is Paul Ramsey. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, It's a wonderful thing to see all of you this morning. Uh, I hope you're doing well. Uh, Our initial plan, I'm sure you're familiar with the release of information about uh, COVID precautions that came out from the CDC this week. Um, uh, we, are, we have been eagerly looking forward to our transition next week to, to changing, relaxing some of our COVID precautions. Uh, and our plan was to do two indoor gatherings beginning next week, but for our 9 a.m. gathering, we actually wound up having two indoor gatherings this week. We cut off right in the middle of the gathering and transitioned people inside with some rain this morning. So this is the second time uh, uh, we're in here this morning. Uh, but I'm, I just, as, as we m- get ready to make this transition as a church, I'm so mindful of all the hard work that is done by so many of our leaders, uh, whether you're lay leaders or staff. Um, I know we mentioned this a, a month or two ago, but um, the work that Jenna and Luke and Caitlin uh, have done in particular to pull off these gatherings, the work that Brandon and Dodds and our, leader, our liturgy leadership team have done to pull together different liturgies for different seasons and our COVID precautions, it has truly been a team effort to pull off a lot of these different 
different kind of kinds of gatherings and different kinds of precautions and these decision-making processes that have gone through. Uh, I'm so grateful, and I want to let you guys all know that um, I, I know that I can speak on behalf of the staff and the elders, um, like I mentioned in the email that I sent out that you may have seen yesterday. On behalf of the staff and elders, I'm so grateful for your grace and your patience with your leaders in this kind of crazy season in which we've been trying to run a game without a playbook. Um, uh, it's been a, it's been a, really been a wonderful, it's been exhausting, admittedly. I'm an optimist. Um, it has been exhausting, but it could have been way more exhausting and difficult had you not been so patient and supportive and gracious with us. And so I just want to say thank you, Sojourn, um, from me and I know from all of us. Um, it's been a wonderful thing to be a pastor here. Amen. And so as we transition to the sermon, as I begin the sermon, today is Ascension Sunday, uh, which means, uh, and Ascension Sunday, unfortunately, is that Sunday in the Christian year, which you may have heard of, but it usually kind of gets the short stick in our thought process. Uh, at least it did for me for a number of years, uh, especially as a young Christian. Uh, and it's, you know, in, in our thoughts as a community, Ascension is kind of the one that might seem at first to stick out like a sore th thumb in the middle of the Christian calendar as a Sunday to celebrate. Isn't Ascension Sunday, if you're familiar with the story, uh, isn't Ascension, is Ascension Sunday the day that Jesus leaves his disciples and then they sit around and do nothing for a week? Why would we remember that? Um, but I, I hope that as we look at our passage together this morning for a few minutes, that that question may be more helpfully answered in a way that shows us that the nothing that they did for a week was actually something quite important. And I hope that our remembrance of Ascension Sunday this week as we turn to Acts chapter 1 um, uh, can be a special time of remembrance where we can ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what the invitation that he is making to you and to me two, nearly 2,000 years after these words were written uh, as we engage with God's word together. And so um, this morning, as we look at Acts chapter 1, uh, I want to do three things together. First, uh, I want to look at a little bit of context to make some initial observations. Second, uh, we're going to look more specifically at, I think, our need for this teaching uh, today. And then third, we're going to consider what growing into a people more content with waiting might look like. And so let's begin. Uh, to begin with a little bit of context, we wrapped up a series in some selected passages in the book of John last week with a sermon uh, in the second part of John chapter 15. Uh, and this week, we're moving for just two weeks into the opening chapters of the book of Acts before we move into a series through the book of 1 John. And Acts, we're going to be here for this week and next week, is Acts is a book that's somewhat in the middle of the New Testament. It's given to us between the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell the story of the life of Jesus and what are known as the epistles, uh, the letters written by the apostles to individuals and churches in the early church to explain what the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus means for the life of followers of Jesus. And um, in a sense, Acts connects the gospels and the epistles, these stories of the life of Jesus and these letters from the apostles. Because when we get to the, the, these letters, we see that there are already churches that have formed. And the question is, where did these churches come from? Acts answers that question. Um, and while we won't get into that in detail in these two weeks, um, that gives you a little bit of context for the book of Acts. Its full name is the Acts of the Apostles and beginning here with the ascension of Jesus who gives the apostles their commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, the book of Acts really traces the formation of the church from its earliest beginnings. It's clear throughout the book of Acts that the God who is described here 
in the New Testament is the same God that we read about throughout the Bible. He's a God who loves his people. He pursues his people. He's constantly inviting his people back into relationship with him through faith in Jesus. God has always desired to have a people for himself to whom and through whom he would reveal his glory. And in the book of Acts, we see that this people isn't a group of strong, powerful, uh, it isn't some powerful earthly government. It isn't uh, a people of strength and beauty that rival the strength and beauty of Rome. Instead, this people looks remarkably ordinary. Men, women, children, seemingly all of whom are misfits of some, some form or fashion, who look feeble and weak in the eyes of the world, but who are filled with a power that nothing in this world can touch. And this paradoxical community, right, united by the gospel of Jesus, expressed itself from the beginning as small local fellowships led by ordinary men who somehow by the plan of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, when we get to Acts chapter 17, are accused by a mob of angry citizens before the city leaders, these men have turned the world upside down. And so as a church that can link our arms back through the generations of faith to these apostles in this early church, it's fitting for us to go back to this passage on Ascension Sunday this year. The example given for us here at the beginning of the book of Acts is one that I hope that we can pray together agreeing with Dodds' prayer just a moment ago that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts to hear what the Lord might have us take from these words here in 2021. So with this as kind of context in mind, there are three initial observations that I want to make for us as we look into our text. So for the first thing, let me read verses one and two for us. Verse one, in the first book, O Theophilus, pause for a moment, Theophilus is probably a friend of Luke or a patron that patronized the, the, God, the disciple Luke who writes this book. In, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. We'll stop there. So the book of Acts was written by Luke, the disciple. And right here at the beginning, we're told that this, the book of Acts is part two in a two-volume set written by the disciple Luke. Um, the first volume is the Gospel of Luke, which tells the story of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And then the second volume is this book, Acts, which looks at the Acts of the Apostles in response uh, as an outflow of the ministry of Jesus. And it's interesting, I think, that Jesus gets the first words in the book of Acts. It begins with a description of Jesus presenting himself alive to his disciples, and then it gives some words of Jesus, and then it tells the story of Jesus ascending into heaven. And the question is, why didn't Luke include the details of the ascension in the story of the Gospel of Luke? Why did he start the book of Acts with this story? And one clue, I think, is right here in the first verse. Notice the word choice that Jesus, uh, uh, excuse me, that Luke uses. Luke says, began to. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so here's what I think Luke is doing. He is ensuring that his readers, including you and me, understand the big picture that Jesus, even today, is continuing the work that he started back then through his church. The big, the big picture is that Jesus came as the Messiah not just as the perfect sacrifice for sin, but also as the heavenly king to establish his kingdom, to lead his kingdom forward through his word and by the power of the spirit. 
And Luke brings us and situates us in the context of this big picture. Jesus is king. He is seated on his throne and he is continuing to do and to teach in his heavenly ministry the things that he began to do and to teach in his earthly ministry. So in beginning the book of Acts with this event, Luke wants us to see that the mission that Jesus gave his disciples to fulfill isn't something that he's left us to do on our own. Jesus is very much alive. It's Jesus who is continuing to do this work through his church. And I think this is why Luke is so insistent right here at the beginning that Jesus is alive. Verse three, he emphasizes for us, Jesus presenting himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. If you catch that, you may not have caught that before as you read through the book of Acts or as you think about the story. You may have thought, you know, we know that Jesus appeared to his disciples, but here Luke makes a pretty staggering claim. He says, Jesus didn't just appear and then go to heaven. He hung out with them for about six and a half weeks. He ate with them. He taught them. He visited with them. He, he demonstrated through many signs and proofs that he was actually alive. For me personally, this is one of many things that reminds me that builds my confidence in the authenticity of this story. Because if they had told a story where Jesus maybe just appeared once or twice to his disciples, that's kind of a non-falsifiable claim to the people who would have received these words. But if, if this claim is that he was there for six and a half weeks, this is something that people could have looked in from the outside and said, no, no, I was there and I, no one was talking about this, but no one did. Jesus is alive, Luke is saying. This Jesus who was crucified rose again. He showed himself to his disciples thoroughly, definitively, and then he ascended into heaven where he's reigning and ruling even today, upholding all things including his church by the word of his power. And so God is not detached. He's not detached. He's not aloof. He's not sitting in heaven waiting for us to get ourselves together or to form the perfect church or to make enough disciples to be the perfect missionaries. He's not waiting for us to do this. He's here with us. He's alive. And this is hugely important because what if Jesus wasn't alive and the rest of it was true? What if what if our message was that Jesus came to die to save us from our sins, but now changing the world is up to us? Right, at best, if changing the world is ultimately up to us, we would be exhausted and we would be constantly disappointed because as we look at the world around us, even as an optimist, as we look at the world around us, we see that it's not changing very fast. The people around us are not changing. We ourselves are not changing the way that we want to. And so at best, our general sentiment, if Jesus was not alive, would be one of disappointment. If only we could do more to bring about the change that we so want to see. But furthermore, as the Apostle Paul writes it, 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But if Jesus is alive, and changing the world is something that God is doing through us, and we can be sure that he will ultimately finish that project himself, then we can engage with the Lord and with the world around us with a deep trust and peace, even with an unfinished project. So all of the events of this book right from the beginning are predicated upon having a risen savior who is actively ministering to his people through his people through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so why does Luke include this story at the beginning of Acts? 
rather than at the end of the gospel, given that it is talking about Jesus, he wants to go to great lengths to make sure that we do not miss this big picture. Jesus is alive. All of these acts of the apostles are an extension of the work that Jesus is doing through them. So the second observation I want to make for us is this. In clarifying the true nature of his kingdom to his disciples, Jesus is telling them what their task is in the world. In verse 6, we read that the disciples came together and asked Jesus. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, at this time, Jews, along with a lot of other nations uh, at the time, were living under the rule of having been conquered by Rome. So they were living under the, uh, under the heavy hand of Rome. And the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, which the disciples are referring to, to here in verse 6, is something that had been promised to Israel throughout the Old Testament. And in their minds... That would necessarily imply, if this promise is going to come to fulfillment, that would necessarily imply the overthrow of the Romans. Jesus' response to them, so that's, that's what they're asking. Are you going to come, are you going to overthrow the Romans? Is this the time? And Jesus' response to them first is one of correction. Right? He, they had started in their own minds to map out the things, that, the, the, their map of how things would work, their map of the timeline for how things should happen. And Jesus says, you don't get to do that. You don't get to know the times and the seasons. Those are not for you. Those are for the Father to know. But with that said, Jesus doesn't reject their hope for restoration. Of course, restoration is at the heart of the message and the reality of the kingdom of God. And so instead, Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples, what you're asking for is too small. Because what he goes on to say is not just about He doesn't just go on to talk about the restoration of Israel. He talks about the restoration of the entire world. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, Jesus says to them. But, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. So that's Israel. And he goes on, and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus' plan for his disciples is for them to wait for the power that they will receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then once they're filled with the Spirit, they're to take this message of salvation and restoration of all peoples to all peoples, to the end of the earth, even those who would have been considered enemies of Israel. Jesus acknowledges that while there is coming a day in which the kingdom will be fully realized. He says, not yet. He doesn't say that's never going to happen. He says, you, you don't need to know the times and the seasons. He does acknowledge that, but he also wants to say that before their very eyes, they must know that the kingdom is in a real way already here. It's as though he's looking at them and saying, you're already in the kingdom of God. You are locking eyes with the king of that kingdom. Here are my orders. Wait, and then when the power of the Spirit comes, go and extend this kingdom, which is here right now. So when the disciples ask him about when he would restore to the, you know, the kingdom to Israel, they're also hitting on another theme that I want to talk about for just a moment that runs throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, the world, here, here, here's the theme that runs through. The world needs a king. And the question is, who is that king going to be? Is it going to be Adam? Is it going to be Noah? Is it going to be Abraham? Is it going to be Moses? Is it going to be Saul? Is it going to be David, Solomon? 
the list goes on. Who is going to be the king? Even today, we are still asking this question. Of course, we're not in a monarchy in the United States. But the questions at their heart are the same questions that you and I are asking today. We need someone who will lead us towards justice. Who will lead us in the way of truth. We also need someone who will lead us in compassion, in love, in mercy, in care. The question is, how do we find this balance? Because it seems as though at best, mere human attempts at this kind of leadership fall in one camp or another. Either it is a rule that is marked by justice and truth without mercy, or it is a rule that is marked by love and compassion without justice and truth. When we consider the gospel, if Jesus had come to bring justice and had simply annihilated the nations who opposed the Jews, then that would have been justice without love and mercy, and the rest of the world would have looked in and said, that's unfair. We would be left looking back thinking, that's unfair, or had we not been annihilated, we would be terrified of this king. If, on the other hand, Jesus had come simply saying, you know what, I'm here to love, and all we need to do is love, because everyone is really okay. And that would have been love without justice. Our hearts would cry out, but what about wrongdoing? Is wrongdoing just something that we should ignore? We would be dissatisfied. But Jesus came to bring both perfectly. He is the perfect balance of love and justice. He spoke clear words of correction and spoke of the coming judgment against wrongdoing very urgently. And then he gave his life both to fulfill justice and to make a way for all, even evildoers, to find mercy and grace in his presence. He is our true king in whom mercy and love find their perfect blend, and the invitation is to all to come and follow him, to turn in repentance and faith, and to come and find meaning and purpose. To do so, primarily, to, and, and we are invited in to spread this kingdom, and our spreading of this kingdom is not taking the world with the sword, but by being witnesses, by bringing a message with us of this king who has come and accomplished salvation for all. And so Jesus says in response to their question, verse seven, it's not for you to know the time. Don't worry about the ultimate end of all things. Instead, wait for the Holy Spirit and go. Go and be my witnesses. Tell of what you have seen and experienced in this new kingdom. And as the Holy Spirit works through you, he will draw many to faith in Christ through your faithful witness. That's Jesus' invitation. And so that's the second thing. The first thing was that Luke wants us to understand the big picture that Jesus is alive, that he is continuing his work in the world through the church. And the second thing is that, that our work is not the work of fixing the whole world and bringing things to completion ourselves but simply being faithful witnesses of Jesus, telling the world about him and inviting them to follow him in a way that will ultimately turn the world upside down. For the third observation I want to make for us before we move into the next point, look with me at verse 4. It says, and, when, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the, th the third observation is this. Jesus has been with his disciples for years, 
teaching them, demonstrating his love and power for them and the whole world through his death and resurrection. He's given them their commissioning. And then right before he ascends into heaven, he says, wait. Rather than saying, you've got it, go get him, get after it. We're told in verse 4 that he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And that brings us to a couple of questions, I think. The first question is this, why did Jesus tell them to wait? I think this one can be answered on two levels. First, and the most obvious level, is that Jesus is talking to a specific group of people, the disciples who are in a particularly unique moment in human history. Uh, They were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry. They saw him die. They experienced him risen again, but they had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So these were people in a particularly unique time in history. And so in verse 5, Jesus gives them this rich reminder. He reminds them of John the Baptist, who had told them, uh, to use Matthew's wording, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what John John the Baptist had said that about Jesus. At this point, though, they had still not yet been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus tells them in verse 5 of our passage, the Holy Spirit is coming not many days from now, which is a rich promise. He's also, though, reminding them of the words that he had spoken to them on the eve of his death, Uh, from John chapter 16. Jesus has said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So in that verse, there's a sense in which he is talking about his death. But even after he rises again, he wants to tell them, he wants to prepare them for life without him in bodily form. He says, it's better for you that I go so that the helper, the spirit can be sent. Now, Jesus there is not talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit and Jesus can't exist in the same place at the same time, or somehow by some mysterious reason, Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't minister to the same person or the same people at the same time. That's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, Jesus is talking about the necessary completion of his ministry on earth. When Jesus became human, which is an event that we call the incarnation, where he takes on flesh. Words almost fall short to describe what happened here. Jesus, light of lights, very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed says, humbled himself to take on the form of a human being, one of his creatures, so that he could be humiliated and die on account of their sin. But then, He was to rise again in victory over sin and death into newness of life to usher in the new creation. And in completing his saving work, the final step as a complement to his humiliation is to be his glorification. He left the right hand of the Father to enter into the world to complete his saving work. And the final stage is being returned to the seat of glory and honor at the right hand of the Father, his glorification. And so all of the promises of God leading up to this that had talked about the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the law being written on your hearts, new creation coming, all of these things in this transition to the saving kingdom of God could not, in the words of one commentator, be fully inaugurated until Jesus had died, risen from the dead, and been exalted to his Father's right hand, returning to the glory he enjoyed with the Father before the world began. 
And so that, in a nutshell, is why the ascension had to happen. And so as he looked at his disciples, preparing them, excuse me, preparing to ascend into heaven, he told them to wait. They hadn't yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit, this promised counselor, helper, through whom God would leave them and lead them and empower them for the mission to which he'd called them. And so he said, wait. That's one answer to the question of why he told them to wait. But there's also another way that we can consider the question of why Jesus told them to wait. Looking beyond the immediate context, waiting on the Lord is a theme that runs through the Bible in a way that invites us to consider how Jesus' command to wait on the Holy Spirit might echo forward for us too into the present moment. In Exodus 33, Moses is being sent to lead God's people and he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses says, I wanna wait for you to lead the way. In Lamentations 3, we read that the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Throughout the Psalms, we read about people waiting on the Lord. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. Our soul waits for the Lord, Psalm 33 says. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Psalm 25, last one, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Throughout the Bible, we read about people waiting on the Lord. And so as we look at, into this passage where the immediate sense, Jesus is certainly telling them to wait for a specific promised, promise, the promised Holy Spirit in that moment, it seems in light of the rest of Scripture that there may be more substance beneath Jesus' command to wait. To understand this a, a bit more, let's consider a second question. The first was, why did Jesus tell them to wait? A second question relatedly, to ask it this way, why might they not have wanted to wait? Why might they not have felt as though they needed to wait? Think about it for a moment. Think about what they had seen and the things that they knew. Jesus had given his commands to them. He had been with them for three years. He had demonstrated for them the kind of love and ministry that he wanted them to carry with them into the world. They had seen him work miracles, demonstrating signs and wonders. They had watched him suffer and die, but then he had demonstrated his resurrection to them over the course of 40 days with many proofs. You can probably picture them thinking to themselves, okay, come on, Jesus, let's get this show on the road. We're ready to go. We have the message. We have the commissioning. You couldn't fault them. But Jesus said to wait. I, can't, I mean, I like to imagine what this may have sounded like to some of these disciples. Think about the leader of the apostles, the apostle Peter, the rock upon whom Jesus said, I will build my church. Peter is known as the impetuous disciple. He's the hasty disciple. He's constantly trying to get Jesus in front of as big of a crowd as possible, trying to move things along in the ministry of Jesus. Have any of you, um, have any of you seen The Chosen? Have you heard of that? It's a TV show. Uh, live stream. It's, I, so it's a, it's a show about Jesus. They're partway through sec the second season right now. And you might think, oh, a, another TV show about Jesus. I'm not going to watch that. I promise you it's not cheesy. It is wonderful. I highly recommend uh, the TV show. It's not perfect. I don't give it my full endorsement necessarily, but I don't personally dislike anything that I've seen yet. 
It's a wonderful show. And, it, and what it does, what, the reason I bring that up is because it, does, it demonstrates so clearly, it shows you so beautifully that both the humanity and the authority of Jesus and also the humanity and family life of the disciples. These aren't, you know, epic heroes with no backgrounds. These are ordinary people like you and like me, living ordinary lives into whom Jesus comes. And so it's not hard to imagine this group of disciples, whether it's as the chosen you know, depicts them or whether it's as they're depicted on the pages of scripture. It's, it's not hard to imagine them receiving the command and thinking, hang on a sec, why wait, Jesus? We've got all we need, we can do this. So why might they have not wanted to wait? Because at the level of the soil of the human heart, we don't like to wait. We don't like waiting. Patience, patience is given in the Bible as one of the fruits of the spirit. And that's because patience is decidedly not a fruit of the flesh. We want to go do things ourselves. We want to charge ahead. And that brings us to our need for this teaching because now even almost 2000 years after these, this book of the Bible was written, we don't like waiting, right? Try, try telling a child to wait for the ice cream that she just asked for. Try telling a grown man that he has to wait until he's saved up for the car before he can purchase it. Try telling a single person to wait until marriage before enjoying physical intimacy. And this is true even in the church. Try telling a brother or sister that their next action item in whatever it is that they're wrestling with is prayer. Try encouraging that brother or sister in your parish uh, in that relationship, whether it's with a coworker or a family member uh, or a friend, Try telling them that it might take years of faithful witnessing and conversation before they see any fruit of their evangelistic efforts. And even then, it might not be the fruit they're looking for. And even then, the task is still the same. Love, be patient, be gentle. Try telling this young man that he has to wait until he's practiced and demonstrated his faithfulness and gifting before he can get in the pulpit and preach. We're in a culture in, where there's, in which there's a real focus on doing and on having in a way that's inextricable from being. Our doing and our having is what we think it means to be. It's what we think it means to be truly alive. You aren't really living until you're doing the thing that you love. You aren't really living until you have the thing that you've been working for. We don't naturally have an internal grid for seeing waiting as something that could be good for us. But in the Bible, it almost seems as though not doing and not having are as important, if not more important than doing and having. Over and over again in the Bible, we read that waiting to do what you hope to do, waiting to have what you hope to have is so often where true meaning is found in life because it's in that gap right? The gap between what you had hoped would be and what actually is, that that is so often where God appears and demonstrates and, and reveals himself to us. Jeremiah 9 says this, he says, thus says the Lord, let not the mighty, excuse me, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
It's not in having wisdom that one should boast. It's not in the ability to do many mighty things or in having many riches that one should boast. It's in understanding and knowing God. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And how are we to know God? Now, of course, devoting ourselves to the things that God loves is a beautiful and wonderful and important way to to learn to know God more. I don't want to set up a false dichotomy here that doesn't exist. There are plenty of good things to do through which you can see and encounter the person of Jesus, like I preached last week on how to abide in his love. But we cannot get away from the fact that when we think about what it means to know God, and to trust him, to be a son or a daughter in his kingdom, looking to our heavenly father with trust. There's a stillness without which you will miss him entirely. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. There's a yearning, a seeking, a not yet having, that if we lean into it, we, uh, that, excuse me, unless we lean into it, we will miss God. Think about those passages from Psalms that I read just a moment ago. Lamentations 3, the Lord is good to those who wait and seek him. Psalm 25, those who wait upon the Lord will not be put to shame. And stop there for a moment. None who wait for God will be put to shame. To these disciples who had the entire world to evangelize, for whom every passing moment waiting may have felt like a missed opportunity, This was such an important message from Jesus. No one who waits for God will feel shame for having done so. None of the disciples would have left thinking, you know what, I really wish I hadn't waited on God. You know, I missed my opportunity because of it. I had all the skills, I had all the words, I had the opportunity, and I just didn't do it. No one will say that. Waiting, you see, is not a waste. If we wait upon the Lord, we will never regret it. We will never say that we have wasted our time. We may wait on a job. We may wait on some future goal. We may wait on a child. We may, we may wait on a father or mother who wasn't there. We may regret or be saddened by those things in and of themselves. But in our waiting on the Lord for his timing, which is not for us to decide, we will never regret that waiting. If in our waiting we are seeking, we are asking, we are crying out to the Lord, we can rest assured that he will be found. And that as Lamentations 3 tells us, the Lord is good to those who wait and seek him. It seems that Jesus' intention here is also for his people, his disciples there to wait in the moment and they're also to be a people marked by waiting. And it seems as we read on uh, that they know what, what waiting looks like. As we, if you, right after the ascension, if we read beyond our passage for just a couple of verses, we see this. Acts 1, starting in verse 12, says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and the whole crew. Then verse 14, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And so we see here, as Luke 
tells us this story, writes these things for us, we see that the disciples knew what it meant to wait. It didn't mean to sit and do nothing. It didn't mean to twiddle your thumb. It meant to seek the Lord, to devote themselves to prayer, to yearn for the realization of a promise that they had not yet received, to be still. And the question for us, Sojourn, is this. Do we have a functional trust in God that waiting, that going without has just as much to do with our being than our having or our doing? Do we have a functional trust that waiting, that going without has just as much to do with our being children of God than our having of things? You see, a necessary part of the human experience is not having all that we want. Even as Christians, a necessary and central part of the Christian experience is the hope in things that we have not yet received. That's how Hebrews defines what it means to have faith. But not only is that exactly what it means to have faith in God, but it actually is what it means to have a true understanding of the Christian life and our mission. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, I know that I have not yet arrived yet. But, he continues, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying there? He's saying, I have not, received, I have not reached the goal yet. I'm not there. I continue to strain. I continue to run. I, I'm not holding the prize yet. Brothers and sisters, the task that we have been given is far too much for us. This running and striving that Paul describes is too much for you. Just like the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, 1 Kings 19, if you're familiar with that story, the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah and he says, the journey is too great for you. Rise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. This journey, this task to which we have called, we cannot do on our own. Internally, the battle that we wage against our flesh. Externally, the walls that we are called to break down, the, the love that we are supposed to share to one another, the, the kingdom of God that we want to push back, the darkness we want to push back, the kingdom of God we want to advance. And that's exactly what God does in us by his power as a result of the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit. It's too great for us. But the Holy Spirit poured out on us is what gives us new hearts and empowers us to do these things. And that only came through waiting. All the disciples needed to do was wait and the Holy Spirit would come. Today, with the Holy Spirit, our posture remains the same. It is those who wait upon the Lord, who lean into our weakness, into the things that we do not have, that we find access to the strength that God can give, the wisdom that God had get, can give, the riches that God makes available to us so that we can afford to do the things that he asks us to do, and the patience to engage with the world in a way that balances a godly pursuit of truth and justice with a likewise godly pursuit of compassion, mercy, patience, and grace. If you're not a person who waits, you will be a, a very ineffective missionary for Jesus. You'll share about Jesus once, and then once you get any pushback or someone asks questions or argues, you'll shut it down, get frustrated, and walk away, quoting 1 Corinthians 1 to yourself. Well, I guess the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
But if you're a person who is learning to wait, if we are a community sojourn that is learning to wait, this kind of waiting is what leads us to where the real power of God is to turn the world upside down. A community that's not marked by the the fruits of the flesh, but that's marked by the fruits of the spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things only come through waiting on the Holy Spirit. Any of those characteristics is too great for you or for me. So as you consider what the Lord might be inviting you to this morning, sojourn, consider the many ways in your life that the Lord right now is teaching you how to wait. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, to give thanks always and for everything, unqualified. When was the last time you gave thanks to God for something that you don't have yet? You thanked God for not giving you what you were asking for. How might God be working in your waiting to strip away what is gripping your heart before him, even if it's something good that you want? How might God be waiting in the middle of your yearning for you to seek and find him? How might he be teaching you that you don't need what you want before you can be full and whole and fully satisfied in him? Think about your hopes in this pandemic or your hopes for politics or for the government. Think about desires and hopes that you have in your job, in your friendships, in your marriage, in any of your relationships. Think think about the hopes that you have for your neighborhood parish, the hopes you have for the direction of our church, for using your gifts for just the task of making disciples. What does God have for you in any of those areas, but not in the future? What does God have for you today while you don't have those things that you're hoping for? Finally, consider the detail that I read just a moment ago from verse 14 of chapter one. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Notice how they were waiting together. It wasn't, you know what? Go each of you to your own own homes and wait alone. A week later, we see that they're still together. They're gathered in an upper room, 120 of them, when the Holy Spirit pours himself out on them. They stay together while they're waiting. And so in your life, with these things that you're waiting for, how have you invited other people into your waiting? How have you asked for them to pray with you and for you and minister to you? How have you invited yourself into their lives, into their waiting, asking how you can pray for them and minister to them? Sojourn, as we consider these things, as we consider the invitation of Jesus to be a people who wait upon the Lord, may he help us to grow in contentment with the things that we do not have in such a way that doesn't just see it as some future joy that is now nothing to us, but is something that in, the, in, in real time today he is using to engage with us, to draw us into greater intimacy so that our boasting can be that we know and understand who God is. May it be so, Sojourn. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for this time that you've given us together. Thank you for Acts chapter 1, for Ascension Sunday, for giving us a few moments to consider your invitation for us through this passage. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would weave into our hearts afresh the truth of the gospel. 
whether this is our first time or our thousandth time encountering the truth of the gospel, Lord, would you weave it into all of our hearts afresh, anew, in a way that stirs our affections, that leads us to worship and praise. Lord, I pray for contentment in this church. I pray for a peace that comes outside of circumstance, outside of possessions, outside of vocation, a peace that comes in the stillness with you. I pray for a deep contentment in a world that is crying out in its discontent, that is inviting us to go its way and boast in our discontentment, Lord. I pray that you would help us to boast in you, in knowing you, in the peace that we have in you, and that that would be a message that we can bring with us in our conversations, in our relationships. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us anew, that you would draw us into greater intimacy today than we were yesterday. and that you would somehow use us as a group of ragtag disciples who are a little different from that earliest church. Use us to turn the world upside down. We ask this for your glory and for the good of our neighbors and for our joy as well. In Christ's name, amen.